0: Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. I'm your host, Eddie Palningen, and next to me in the studio is my friend Niklas Servos. How are you today?
1: I'm great. I had a great weekend, and uh, I'm really, really excited to speak to our guest today.
0: Yeah, today we have the great pleasure of talking to Patrick Valian, co-founder and chairman of the Swedish industrial group Volati, listed on Nasdaq Stockholm. Valian is both a successful businessman and a big reader. And for today's episode, he has picked the book *Business Adventures*: Twelve Classic Tales from the World of Wall Street, written by John Brooks, published in 1969, and quoted by Bill Gates as the best business book I've ever read. Here comes our conversation with Patrick Valian.
1: Welcome to the studio, Patrick. Thank you very much. So, Patrick, how did your interest in business and investing
2: start? Well, I've been interested in business for all my life, for as long as I can remember. Investing, I'm a late bloomer into. I, I started to get interested in that during my time at university, actually.
0: And why have you chosen the book Business Adventures?
2: I think it's a great book. Uh, it's a bit off the beaten track, even if Bill Gates and Warren Buffett likes it. Um, I think it's lots of good stories that you can learn a lot about from.
0: Yeah. And when was the first time you read it? I
2: think it's like 10 years ago. I picked it up from, from reading about Bill Gates, uh, recommended it on his, uh, on his page.
1: I had not heard about the book before, so I'm really happy that you chose this book And uh, the author is John Brooks, as Eddie said. Can you tell us a little bit about him?
2: Yeah, he's a writer, or was a writer and a journalist. He was a contributor to The New Yorker. uh, And he was gradually writing more and more about Wall Street and business. But his background was like, we would like to be an author and turned into a journalist.
1: The book is structured in 12 chapters, and in my view, they can be read separately. I would divide the chapters into three uh, segments, business, the financial industry, and policy. And having followed you on Twitter and what you've done with Volati, I know that you're interested in all three segments. So do you have a favorite chapter?
2: It varies which chapter is my favorite. I reread the book in for this, and I found the chapter about the oil scandal, which led up to Warren Buffett's famous investment in Amex, to be extra fascinating this time.
0: And why was that?
2: Because I got even more impressed of Warren Buffett's investment reading about the oil scandal from a different perspective. This scandal was so huge that it actually affected Wall Street in general. And thinking about Warren making this big bet at Amex when they were down like 50% made me even more impressed. And also I think there is something about... This guy, I don't remember his name. What was his name? The Exactly. I think it's so common that people take risks to make money. They don't succeed, but they're so secure of their own idea that they take even more risk, lending even more money, raising the bets. And he did that a couple of times. And he did it first in Chicago. And they said, this is enough. You can't trade here anymore. And then he turned to New York and did it again. And I think there is something about risk and risk management and people in general that we could learn from that story.
0: Sounds like sunk cost fallacy. You just keep investing in something even though it doesn't work out. Yeah, And and that really put the whole stock exchange at risk uh, in this situation. One quote that I really liked was, uh, more than money was at stake. It was a question of the relation of the stock exchange to the country's many million investors.
1: One thing we will get back to, I think, is uh, some of the similarities, I think, got repeated a bit in the financial crisis, even though it was bigger, of course. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think it was a similar situation?
2: People take too much risk. And when things goes good, they raise their bets because they think they are gods that could do everything. And if they go bad, they raise their bets to, to sort of hide their losses. Uh, you see that time and time again.
0: A common theme in the book for me is about trust, which comes back all the time. And one other timeless story is the chapter on fluctuations of the market, where Brooks writes that the New York Stock Exchange is a sociological test tube forever contributing to the human species' self-understanding. So what are your thoughts about that?
2: I think that chapter is lovely. And I think it's lovely that he has citations from a book from 1688 about the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. And When you're reading those, I think they're timeless. I think that's very fascinating.
0: Can you tell our listeners a bit about that story, about the fluctuations on the market?
2: This was 1962, if I remember right. The market has been going up for many years. And suddenly, uh, the market gets a bit nervous, and they start to sell off. And in like three days, they're selling off the market like 25%. And then suddenly, it turns back. And if you have been asleep for those three days, you wouldn't have noticed that anything have changed. And it's all about the market or the participants in the market thinking about what will everybody else do. So first they think that everyone will sell and then they are selling, selling everything. And when the market goes down to 500, there is an idea that it could never go below 500. And then suddenly everyone starts to buy. I think that's timeless. That happens again and again.
1: And the market goes back to zero, more or less, at the end of the week.
2: Exactly. I think that's very fascinating. The first flash crash.
0: And on the topic of self-understanding, what would you say are your most common biases?
2: Oh, I have so many. I think all of us have the most of them, and we think that we could control them. But if I divide it into two segments, one, which is how I act within Volati, and one, which is how I act with on the outside of Volati, I would say that outside Volati... I trust my guts too much, I don't do my homework, I just act on news and run with the herd, uh, and I do that again and again. So what I actually have done is decided to not do too many investments outside volatile because I'm not particularly good at it.
0: You're staying in your circle of competence. Oh,
2: That's, that's a very good, nice way to put it. <laughs>
0: In the second chapter, we read about Ford's launch of the Edsel car, and this is really an American anti-success story that takes place in the late 1950s. So what are the lessons from this failure?
2: There are so many lessons, but I think we can learn a lot about the market economy is very good in correcting mistakes. So they did these huge investments, like $300 million, if I remember right, and in just a couple of years of time, they, 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 they quit it. They stopped manufacturing and selling the car, imagine this happening in a commando economy. They will continue for years and years and years, giving customers cars they didn't like, uh, just because that's the way command economies works. So market economies is fascinating and a great, great thing. So that's one lesson. Another lesson, more from an investments perspective is, so this is the Ford company, a huge company, and they are so convinced that they will move into a big new market and that they will make lots of money from it. And they fail. They fail so badly. And I'm thinking about if I was reading about this car at the time and all the money they spend on it and how sure they are about their success, wouldn't I like to buy that stock just to get into that? And I think we can learn a lot about that, about how to listen to managers, to be careful about their predictions about the future and, and stuff like that.
0: And why do you think they failed?
2: Mm-hmm. That's a very good question. I think they failed. I think big bets is something you should be aware of. So they they made a huge bet and they got it wrong. Maybe it's better to be make more smaller bets and, and uh, hedge your bets.
0: That's a bit contrary to Buffett's and uh, Munger's concentration and bet big when you have the chance.
2: Yes, but that's in a different context. I would say so. If you are a manager and you need to develop new products, you, the future is so unsure that you maybe should have, think more in bets. And when you have a success, then you start to to invest more heavily in it.
0: So you mean there's the the difference between an operating investment and
2: an actual like to buy stock in a company? I think that's a big different situations. My,
1: my takeaway from the chapter with, uh, with Edsel is, is more or less that uh, they uh, had to invest a lot. I mean, Ford had to invest a lot in their manufacturing and uh, advertising and, and so on. And, and for maybe a, a modern company today, they can maybe do a, a small beta test before and really don't make that huge investment beforehand. What's your view on that?
2: I think it's right, but not. It's not the complete truth. I think if you look at many of the companies, Google or Microsoft or um, Facebook, whoever, they make great investments. I think the companies today even make larger investments than we did previously uh, in different kinds of things, but still huge bets. Um, So maybe you're right, but I think it's still companies making huge bets and Nokia, which Microsoft acquired, could be a good example of a bet going wrong.
1: Yeah, definitely true. Um, Another theme that is connected to this is the story of uh, Xerox. They really bet big on one thing, while the largest companies today, the tech companies, for example, they seem to make bets all over the place. And some become huge successes and make up for all the bad choices they do.
2: Xerox is very fascinating because they bet early on that they got it right but then when they were successful, they had lots of investments in research and development, and they didn't trust their own findings. So actually Microsoft and Apple is, took their ideas from Xerox because they didn't carry it out. That's a really interesting
0: point. Yeah, And I love the title.
2: Xerox, four of them. I think that's <laughs> the most brilliant headline ever.
0: <laughs> the copy company. So what other uh, lessons do you have from that uh, story?
2: I think there is so many things. I, I When I read that chapter i was thinking what would my picture of xerox be if i was reading this in the mid 60s so successful so strong cash flows dominating a new market which is growing very rapidly i was thinking that they will be a huge success for a very long time and today we don't think about them in that way do we when you are in the middle of something the the companies that are thriving is doing all the good things they will eventually run into problems, most of them. I think that's a very big lesson. So you
0: need to stay long-term and look far into the future?
2: You have to look far into the future, but also realize that the future is very unpredictable.
0: So diversification.
2: Exactly.
1: I think it was funny because I'm more or less, I've mostly heard about the downfall of Mm -hmm. Xerox, not the success. But of course, you need a success before you can get a downfall. So um, I was really interested about the story because... Uh, it seems like xerox in in their successful years didn't only focus on the business they also focused on like philanthropic uh, matters and so on so i wanted to ask you as a business leader how do you how do you think businesses shall consider society
2: i think if you should be long term successful as a business you have to have happy customers happy suppliers happy employees, and happy society in, in general. Otherwise, you are not successful in the long run, so that's important. But with that said, I don't think that boards or management, they always have to face up to the owners, so they they have to be very careful with the money, and i I was surprised reading about Xerox, even sort of sponsoring UN. I think that is a f- step too far, maybe. And I was thinking that w- reading about that, uh, sponsoring universities and stuff like that, that's very good. But it also changes the focus from the management. And I felt that Xerox was so successful that they moved their focus from the, the business and into society. And I think that was maybe one step in, to, to the downfall, actually.
0: Another interesting chapter tells the story of Clarence Saunders, uh, the Piggly Wiggly stores that he's created. And he was basically the inventor of the modern supermarket concept with aisles where people could walk and check out uh, their, their groceries. But uh, wh- he was mostly famous for the chapter here where he was doing a corner on Wall Street. So, for those who don't remember, this was in the 1920s. Uh, what is a corner?
2: A corner is when you buy all the stocks in the market to make sure that the short sellers can't cover their position. And how was this story built up? This story is lovely. It's like Michael Lewis, uh, all his stories. So it's great characters. And this this businessman uh, is running a business. He finds out that the big guys in Wall Street is shortening his stock. And he thinks that, wow, I will outsmart them. And he starts to buy the stock. He buys everything. And he's quite clever, actually. And in in the beginning, it looks like that he will be successful and that he will make loads of money. And then, of course, there is this turn of the story that the stock exchange gives them four days extra to cover their positions. And they find the stocks. And suddenly, his corner is gone and he loses quite a lot of money. And he goes, goes bankrupt, actually.
0: Yeah, it's hard to squeeze out the bears.
2: It's very hard and you shouldn't fight with the big guys. I'm always thinking about the stock markets like like the Super Bowl. And I have these pink Speedos and these guys is running towards me. And that's the market. That's Mr. Market coming for you. And you should be pretty sure that you could run fast.
1: He didn't have any lessons from the market before. It seemed, it seemed like a real businessman. Uh, Not really knowing the the rules of the game, so to speak.
2: No, and in the beginning it works. I think there's a lesson as well. You don't always have to play by the rules. You could invent them by yourself. But you should be aware of the big guys. And also he was very emotional.
0: I mean, he was aggressive and he was mostly, uh, he didn't like the Wall Street at all and he wanted to take them down.
2: He goes overconfident. He thinks that he has success and he keeps carrying on. Yeah.
1: Quite interesting also that he had a success afterwards as well.
2: Again, he came back.
1: But then he failed again, right?
2: That's an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really?
1: Yeah, I, could, I mean, if, if he had, had been frugal on the side then maybe he would have been a success. They discuss a lot about the Pink Palace, and I think there is some, some documentary about that Pink Palace, his huge mansion with a private golf course and so on.
0: <laughs> he wanted to live a very luxurious life that he didn't really, couldn't afford. And uh, related to that is chapter 9 about uh, David Lilienthal, a former politician. He started a second life, as the chapter is named. He became a successful entrepreneur and uh, financially independent by far, And he says in that chapter that he doesn't think money makes much difference as long as you have enough. So what is your view on that?
2: Completely correct. That's the way it is. And I think my takeaway from that story is that you always have to find what you really like to do. He was very successful from the beginning. Seems to have lots of fun what he was doing and enjoying it. And then second life it was the same it was not focusing on the money it was focusing in doing a good job learning improving i think that's the way to do it if you focus on the money it will you will not be successful you always have to try to learn and improve i think that's a very big lesson
0: and how have you find like what is meaningful for you
2: for me I love what I'm doing. I really love what I'm doing. Building a company, trying to build something sustainable for a very long time and building something which is independent from myself, building something that has success in the walls. Uh, I think that's tremendous fun.
1: How has it helped you to be two running the company from the start?
2: I think it's very good to be two or, or even for many years we have been four maybe with Morten and Matthias or CEO and CFO, they have left us now, are still with us but in those positions. I think different perspectives is very important. I think trying to find a partner which looks at life some ways like you, but also have different perspectives. I think that's been very helpful.
0: And for those who are not familiar with with, uh, Volati, what kind of company is it?
2: So we started Volati 2003, Carl Palogen and I, and we had an idea of, Acquiring companies, generational shifts was a big thing at that time. And we thought, let's buy some companies and see if we could build a group of companies. So that was the way we started. Today, we are 6 billion Swedish in turnover. We have an EBITDA margin of 10%, return on equity of 33, if I remember right. And we have been growing the last 12 months with like 50% EBITDA per share, but over the long run, like thirty percent.
0: And you were relatively young when you started the company, and you have been very successful. So, we're curious what kept you from selling after growing from say twenty-five million to hundred million, and instead you kept going and building into this multi-billion-dollar company.
2: Mm, that's a very good, very good question. Delayed gratification seems to seems to work quite well. I think it's. I, I have not been driven by uh, about the money. And money is important, but if you have enough, you have enough. I, I have always tried to to build something, to build something lasting. I think that's the fun thing of this.
1: Do you have an aim with that building? I mean, do you do you want your uh, your kids and so on to to take up the helm? where you were you left in the end, or mm,
2: that would be lovely? But more important is, I, I have some idea that when I'm 85, I will walk into the office, have a cup of coffee with the guys running the business, and talk with them. I think that would be lovely. So building something lasting, Uh, that's my my dream.
1: Sounds really nice. Um, I wanted to go into the type of company you're running. Um, Many speak about serial acquirers. You call yourself an an industry group. Um, And uh, these type of companies in in today's market carry a large premium to the private companies that they acquire. Um, However, we only see the finished product, which is, more or less a di- diversified set of, of companies. And I wanted to hear your take on how fragile a serial acquirer is from the start and how important it is, so to speak, to strike gold with the first shot.
2: Mm. There is many things in that question. If I should start with the end, I think the first acquisition is cr- crucial. So if we had m- made a mistake acquiring Tornemar, first acquisition, I wouldn't be sitting here. That's true, and that's more luck than skill. Uh, But also starting with the first part of your question around valuation, I think there is some interesting stuff there. Um, First of all, I think you should think about larger companies often carries a higher valuation than a smaller one, so that is in play here. Also, we have uh, liquidity, so a listed company has a higher price versus a non-listed company. So that you should think about. But also, you had uh, uh, Michael on the pod.
0: Michael Mabosan.
2: Yeah, I think his book is very fascinating. So if if we try to do this here, so how could these companies motivate this valuation? And I think that's all about uh, the return on, on invested capital and the growth rate. So some parts gives you in one direction, but the other direction would be to look at this as capital allocations. And to do that, you have to dig into uh, the returns, future returns, and what you think about that and the growth rate. And then I think you will land in a different type of valuation because normally the companies that is acquired has a low growth rate, although they have a good capital return. So what you basically do is that you buy a company, take the excess uh, cash flow and invest that in the next uh, company. And if you manage to do that, you will end up in a different valuation.
1: The duration is really key there, because I mean, in the I mean, if you take the valuation now, I think in the decade ahead, at least, or maybe more, then first of all, there won't be any free cash flow because everything will be reinvested in new businesses. Uh, and then uh, you of course need to count with that uh, that eventually the cash will land in the hands of the owner, or maybe even better that that the companies can continue to find these interesting acquisitions for the very, very,
0: very long term. So you said you want to create something lasting. What is your strategy to achieve that?
2: I think making the company independent of yourself and trying to make the lessons you have learned into rules and processes and checklists and whatever. Also to figure out what what you have been good or lucky at doing that is not able to transfer to other people and trying to find other ways to create value.
0: And how do you work with that practically? Can you give an example?
2: I think changing business models is very important for every company growing. So what we have been doing the last maybe two or three years is to going into more and more synergistic uh, acquisitions, trying to build clusters of companies that could grow within their industry. And I think that's the way forward for us. So one important thing to do forward. Another thing we have been doing, we're working very hard with strategic HR for a long time, trying to build a leadership pipeline, uh, which I think is tremendously value creating. So it's trying to build or in processes that could continue by themselves.
0: And do you have one culture in the whole group or how do you work with that?
2: We have different cultures. Uh, we, we normally say that the companies or the clusters of companies should be proud of their owners, thinking that we are a good owner. But all the companies should have their own culture, their own way of winning, their own values.
1: Going back to Mobosen a bit, uh, I feel that uh, some serial acquirers just try to grow quickly. And what Mobosen teaches us is that growth in innovate it itself isn't creating, isn't value creating. Um, so, how do you think about serial acquirers trying to grow really quickly through either raising equity and or debt? Uh, what, what's your take on that?
2: Well, I think that's a very important uh, point to think about. I think you always have to look into the return on invested capital. I think that's crucial. Uh, I think may, too many people today is just looking into EBITDA growth, not even EBITDA per share. EBITDA as such, I think that's a big mistake. Um, so I think that's a very important lesson. and. About debt, I think, especially right now, you should be very careful about the level of debt the company has, uh, very important.
1: And and you're not scared yourself about when a company such as yours is growing, the absolute number of debt will increase.
2: Actually, I think Volati has had at too low level of debt since our IPO. I think we have, if I remember right, 1.7 net debt EBTA at the moment, and we're aiming for being between two and three. So we are quite conservative. Um, we have long durations. Um, so, so, okay, the, the, the absolute number is quite high, but in relation to the business, it's, it's not that high. And also when you, you are growing, you get more diversified, you get less risk. Um, and also you get more important towards the banks. So no, I'm not, no, the short answer is no.
1: Good answer. Another question is that, that people around us internationally see is how many serial acquirers and holding companies we have in Sweden that are also, many of them, really successful and have been successful for a long time. I'm curious to know, why do you think that is?
2: I think there is two parts to that. One is... Like when we started 2003, there was not so many of them, but lately some have been very successful and success always attracts copycats, if I could use that word. And should everyone be aware of that when you find an attractive investment, it will attract capital and the the, the returns will go down. So that is one thing which is happening. The other thing is that we have a structure in the Swedish industry, which has plenty of small companies. And quite a lot of large companies, but not so much in between. So what is happening is that mid-sized companies is acquiring small-sized companies, and so the structure is quite good for this type of business.
0: And do you think Swedish companies and
2: entrepreneurs get less fame than they deserve? I think that entrepreneurs should strive for success, not fame.
0: And what do you see as the pros and cons of being a generalist in the type of companies that you buy, like compared to niche players like Asabloy or Nibe?
2: I think we are trying to be both at the moment, actually. I think niche players, I talked before about synergies and the need to add value as an owner. I think too much emphasis is on acquiring and making the arbitrage. I think you had to add value as as an owner in this market, and it's easy to do do that as a niche player. So I would say that we are working in a couple of niches to, to be able to do that. With that said being a generalist creates opportunities to hit the big elephant when when that opportunities arise at this in, in this particular time i would say it's hard to find an elephant but markets is changing so who knows in a couple of years there will be a good chance to do something a bit different
1: and you said before that you're building these uh, these groups of companies and and cluster them together how does that help you when you meet entrepreneurs who maybe wants to sell to someone who really knows their business,
2: mm, I think it works two ways actually. Uh, so it's beneficial because you understand the business, you maybe know each other for a long time, you you know which questions to ask. That's good. But many entrepreneurs would like their company to live on with their own name, and don't uh, synergy sounds good. But if you're the seller, it sounds bad. So it works both ways. Um, but we have been quite successful in 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 Solix, which. Is a supplier to to the billing industry, uh, finding synergies, building uh, a platform for growing the companies that we're acquiring. The same within labels, I, I think you could do it. It's it's pros and cons.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible company you have created uh, over quite a short space of time Um, but moving on from the company side a bit uh, I know that you have a huge interest in soccer or what we say football here (laughs) Uh, and your favorite team is Arsenal obviously (laughs) (laughs) and uh, myself I'm a long time Liverpool fan and I look back to the I mean uh, more than a decade ago when when uh, Liverpool played uh, Arsenal and uh, yeah you beat us most of the time (laughs) <laughs> and you have this demon of a coach, uh, Arsene bangar um who had a strength of taking uh, players or finding players that were more or less off the beaten path and making them into champions. Have that uh, had an impact on how you see on things?
2: I think you can learn so many things from different fields. Football is one of them. So what... I, Building on that, I think if you do the same thing as everyone else, you get the same result. So you always have to try to find your own way of doing things. And Wenger for sure changed English football forever. New training methods, diets, finding players in another way, and then moving on and focusing on young players. So you have to find your own way to to be successful and building on your own strengths. And that's a big learning point. Another learning point from from a failure, actually, in both Arsenal and Man United, they had Wenger and and, and Fergie, strong managers leading the clubs to glory, and then afterwards, just huge failure. So, it's, it's so important to not build the company around yourself, but to build processes and knowledge and diversify and have the pipeline of talents in place. So, you can learn a lot from football.
1: And do you think they they maybe were a bit too short term oriented in the end, not thinking about the really long term?
2: I think you could accuse Fergie for that. I think Wenger had a different problem. We were we were Arsenal were building, <laughs> Arsenal were building the Emirates Stadium, uh, having to allocate all the money there, and that meant that the club didn't was not competitive at the moment. And they had a long-term plan about that. The long-term plan was to get the Emirates up and running and then having uh, financial strengths compared to the other clubs. But there was things changing in the environment. Man City got all this money. Chelsea got all the money. Later on PSG and changing the competitive landscape 100%. Uh, So that's a lesson as well. You can't control everything the environment will change and you have to adapt.
0: So something you're doing differently maybe than some of your competitors is that you read a lot. And uh, we have now talked about business adventures. Do you have something more you want to add uh, about the book or so?
2: I think reading is a lovely way of learning. I think you should read read a lot. Uh, You should read different genres of books, not only finance, but... Are the things to learn and 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 stand on the shoulders of the giants.
0: And what are you reading mostly, or which kind of genres?
2: Uh, I like uh, memoirs and stuff like that because then you it's real people and you could learn from their stories. So right now, I'm I'm listening to a JP Morgan book, which is fascinating.
0: And do you have some uh, book recommendations for our
2: listeners? Peter Bevelin, a Swedish guy, which I actually met. He was a part owner of Le Monde, which is now the foundation of Salix, so half the Volati. His books is fascinating. He is a fascinating guy. Uh, I was a pleasure meeting him, but his books is re- really good. A bit tricky to find, but very readable. And uh, where can our audience follow you? Well, I'm on Twitter, P.I.G. P.G. Vallon. Mm. That will be business, politics, and a bit of football.
1: All in Swedish though, right?
2: Mostly in Swedish. Mostly in
1: Swedish. <laughs> okay, great. And of course, they can follow you and your journey with
0: Volati. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.